Free Speech Fallout follow-up. Can Blitzchunk sue Blizzard? Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are following up on the story of the week, the weekend, and maybe when all is said and done, the year. And that story is Activision Blizzard's suspension of Hearthstone player Blitzchung in the face of his statements made at the end of a tournament broadcast regarding freedom for Hong Kong in relation to the troubles they're having with China as of late. And I covered this extensively in a video I did earlier this week called A Blizzard of Backlash on China, Freedom of Speech, and Terrible Contracts. Since that video was made, a lot has happened, including a number of articles in national press, in global press, and a lot of folks having their own opinions as to what's happening and why, including employees at Blizzard and other places, and an overall kind of groundswell of support uh, for Blitzchung against Blizzard among those folks on the internet, on Reddit, on social media, in other places. And so one of the things I wanted to do in this video is just kind of cover some of that follow-up, talk a little bit about what's happening, but also take on a different question. I got asked in a number of places on Twitter, in DMs, in the comments to the previous video about whether or not Blitzchung would have an action against Blizzard for what they have done here. And my initial gut reaction, as you probably heard on the video that I made earlier this week, was that in general, no, he doesn't have a great cause of action because the contract terms that he entered into, the services that he provided under those terms, are pretty black and white. Blizzard lawyers did a good job of making sure everything was buttoned up in terms of language, and he has no right to really appeal the decision that was made in respect of uh, their reduction in his winnings, their suspension of his activities for Hearthstone. That being said, I wanted to take a look a little bit more at the rules, the handbook that they incorporate by reference into those rules, the unconscionability question in California and in Delaware, and what exactly will apply jurisdictionally. And I think at the end of the day, there may be a case, if he wanted to pursue it, to actually bring Blizzard to task to at least get out of those opening stages of just having the case dismissed. And if you can get out of that, if you can get out of those opening stages, you can potentially uh, get a settlement, get a better resolution for yourself because it is so costly, it is so potentially damaging for the company that you're suing. And we're going to talk about that all. Now, the disclaimers at the end of the video now, if you're not familiar with virtual legality, we used to have it at the front end. Uh, but the disclaimer is that none of this is official legal advice. If you are listening, Blitzchunk, don't take this as legal advice. Get yourself legal counsel to discuss these issues. But we do want to talk basically about how contracts work, how these various jurisdictional provisions will work, and whether or not there could potentially be an avenue to bring a claim against Blizzard. And I think it might be a long shot and it might not be a shot worth taking because of the size of Activision Blizzard, but I want to talk to you about what I see in terms of loopholes, what I see in terms of technicalities that could potentially get you in front of a civil liability court of limited jurisdiction that could potentially have discovery, that could potentially have cross-examination of witnesses, that could potentially make uh, life troublesome for Blizzard if Blitzchung chose to do so. But before we get there, let's take a look at what's going on right now. I've pulled up a Game Daily Biz article called Blizzard Bans Hearthstone Pro for Supporting Hong Kong Protests. Uh, it, in candidness, I was actually a part of this article. I was asked for comment, and you can see a few of those here. I highly recommend checking it out. It covers a lot of the response that has happened online. But what I said uh, to Sam, the author of this article, uh, was in particular that the section which Blizzard has cited for allowing it to take the actions it did against Blitzchung are draconian to the point of themselves being offensive. In no respect would I ever advise a client to enter into a contract to perform services that would allow the recipient of those services to rescind the right to my earnings after the fact based on something tangential to the services provided. And I would also add, I didn't put this in the quote that I gave to Sam, I would also add that are entirely determined in the sole discretion of the party that would get that money back. When you're drafting a contract, when you're advising a client on these things, one of the reasons that term stuck out at me is you want the incentives to be aligned among the parties. In essence, when you sign a contract, you are taking a certain kind of trust me position because unless you are going to sue over that contract, you have to acknowledge that you're going to abide by the terms and obligations of that contract and you have to hope that the other party is going to abide by those terms and conditions as well. If they don't, you have to sue to go get them to do so. 
In this particular case, however, Blizzard has all of the chips on its side of the table. It can determine in its sole discretion that an act outside of the tournament structure can offend people somewhere. And by so doing, they can remove all of your winnings. And there are some really big winnings out there. We're going to take a look at the actual winning table in the rule book and in the handbook. But there's hundreds of thousands of dollars at play. So if Blizzard, which isn't likely to happen in the future, but if Blizzard were in serious financial trouble, they could start inventing things. Now, yes, you have a long tail effect to that. You have people that aren't willing to participate in your tournament anymore. But in the contract terms that they've provided, they can be really, really mean. And in in so doing, I think they might have taken a step too far for what's actually going to be enforceable in certain jurisdictions. And we're going to talk about that as well. But I highly recommend checking out this article because they have kind of collated a number of the comments here, including in a statement acquired by The Verge, a spokesman for Epic Games, who also happens to be 40% owned by Tencent. I've seen higher numbers. I'm not sure where 40% comes from, but it's a very high amount of Epic that Tencent owns said that the company supports everyone's right to express their views on politics and human rights. We wouldn't ban or punish a Fortnite player or content creator for speaking on these topics. Epic CEO Tim Sweeney followed up on Twitter saying that the company supports the rights of Fortnite players and creators to speak about politics and human rights. Now, I think that's great. I think people should be saying these kinds of things, especially if, as we talked about in my earlier video, that's a value that you think society actually holds. Uh, which I think you are starting to see on the internet with respect to the response to the NBA and this issue with Blizzard, some other things that are happening with Apple and some of the other tech giants. However, I have my doubts on this particular issue. Tencent is the company that is enforcing some of the bans on NBA streaming and on NBA merchandising in China based on the comments of the Houston Rockets general manager and the fact that Tencent owns 40% of Epic does give some doubt as to whether if Epic were facing this exact same scenario, if you had a Fortnite tournament where someone at the end of it said freedom for Hong Kong, would they actually abide by what they are saying here? That's not something that we know of. It might be something that we find out pretty soon, depending on exactly what happens with respect to this movement and what happens with respect to people that are playing in these tournaments and whether or not they want to make these kinds of statements. I highlighted here in their kind of poll quote, something from Superdata, which is an industry analyst, that they say Blitzchung doesn't have a leg to stand on legally. And that's really the purpose of this video. I highlighted that because it jumped out at me and I said, yeah, I think in general, as a corporate lawyer, you, you sign a contract, you have a term like that, like the one that Blizzard quoted, you're probably in a lot of trouble. And there's no doubt that that's the case. There's no doubt that in terms of where you find yourself at, if you are Blitzchung right now, if you've got a provision like that, that is written in black and white, says we can reduce your money to zero dollars. You've got a long hill to climb in order to defeat a provision like that. But it's not an impossible hill, and it's not an impossible hill in certain jurisdictions, including California, which is what we're going to talk about. Uh, additionally, they also comment on the fact that Blizzard employees had covered up with paper uh, indications on the statute at Blizzard headquarters that they said, think globally and every voice matters. There was a walkout of Blizzard employees over the last few, day few days. It says, in a rare show of bipartisanship, a pair of senators, Marco Rubio and Ron Wyden, not general bedfellows, if you are well aware of U.S. politics, have expressed displeasure at Blizzard's actions. And then it finishes with a Twitter quote from me. That where I said, the ironic thing here, of course, is that by Blizzard's own standards, since their actions self-evidently offend a portion or group of the public, they should probably sanction themselves. Again, going back to the actual rule that they quoted that said that any act that brings Blizzard's name into disrepute can be sanctioned, obviously based on what has happened since they have taken this action against Blitzchung, it's clear that if anything, their own actions have brought them into as much or much more disrepute than Blixchung's statement actually did. And that's really the irony of this entire situation. In addition to that, you're also seeing in various places on the internet, Reddit and elsewhere, that they are trying to take Overwatch's May character and make her a symbol of the Hong Kong independence movement in order to try to get Overwatch banned in China. That China has a history of banning imagery that it associates negatively uh, with either its president uh, or its governance. Uh, and in this case, I believe the notion is if you can make May into a symbol for Hong Kong, that China will have no choice but essentially to ban Overwatch for having this character within it. Honestly, uh, in terms of these kinds of movements, we talk a lot about what's effective, what's ineffective in terms of getting the attention of corporations, how corporations act and respond. This, I have to say, is fairly brilliant. 
Um, I'm not sure who the Redditor is that came up with this plan, uh, but in terms of getting Blizzard to pay attention and forcing their hand and forcing China's hand, this is the kind of thing that absolutely will get the attention of both those governments and the corporate board of directors. And so this is the kind of thing that has a chance of working uh, and is an actually a very interesting kind of s step forward in these kinds of protest movements uh, on the internet. And that's all kind of the background of what's happened in the last 48 to 72 hours. Uh, just to kind of bring it back home to what we're talking about here before we dive deep into the rules. We have here now the actual ruling that they made during the Asia-Pacific Grandmasters broadcast over the weekend, there was a competition rule violation during a post-match interview involving Blitzchung and two casters, which resulted in the removal of the match from VOD replay. And the rule actually is, we're going to look at where this sits in the rules document, says engaging in any act that in Blizzard's sole discretion brings you into public disrepute, offends a portion or group of the public, or otherwise damages Blizzard's image, will result in removal from Grandmasters and reduction of the player's prize total to zero U.S. dollars, in addition to other remedies which may be provided for under the handbook and Blizzard's website terms. So it sounds like we have a few things to read in order to kind of tease this out. And one of the things I wanted to look for, because so many people were asking me the question, was what provisions Blizzard actually had in respect of jurisdiction and venue, which are two legal terms that appear in a lot of contracts, usually at the end, where they establish what law is going to apply to the contract interpretation and disputes that would come out of that contract interpretation and where you would have to bring that dispute and how. Uh, and when I say how, I mean, can you bring it in court? Do you have to go through mediation? Do you have to go through arbitration? Other alternative dispute mechanisms. Uh, and I was looking for that language in particular in the document where this rule sits, and I found myself wanting. So let's take a look at that document right now. And both of these exist as links to the Hearthstone website. Uh, they're actually linked directly by Blizzard. So as far as I know, these are official as they come. We have here the 2019 Hearthstone Grandmasters Official Competition Rules version 1.4, uh, which if you're paying attention at home means that there are probably three other versions at least of this document for only 2019. And whenever you're talking about terms and conditions, whenever you're talking about rules like this, it's worth noting from a lawyer's perspective and just from a user's perspective that these documents almost always reserve the right to be amended by the company that's providing them at their discretion. Now, they usually have to give notice of that, but they can revise the rules on the fly. And so whenever you're entering into one of these kinds of uh, situations, these relationships, it's worth noting that. And it's worth noting that even if you trust the folks that are putting on a tournament like this or that you're otherwise engaging with, you need to read some of the rules. And obviously, when you've got a 50-page document or whatever this might be, actually, this is only 18 pages, so it's pretty reasonable for one of these, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. Maybe you want to have a lawyer involved, but you really should read the rules because things like this can happen. And the better understanding you have of what you are agreeing to, the better you can make your own decisions about whether you should fly to a tournament, whether you should pay for a hotel room, exactly what you should get in involved in, especially if the company can just decide it didn't like an act that you took completely separate from playing their game and they can remove all of your winnings under the terms of the contract that they put forth. Now, we're just going to scan through here. We've got an introduction. We've got, this is by invitation only. You have to be eligible in certain countries. Here's how the tournament will work. Here's how prizing will work. We see prizes here. We have seasonal prize rewards. First place is basically $2,000 for the most part, going down to $500 awards for fifth and sixth. Then you've got global finals with hundreds of thousands of dollars on the lines. And then you have player conduct and prize deductions. So here's the overall rule. 6.1a says grandmasters players will be held to the highest standards of personal integrity and good sportsmanship. Grandmasters players are bound by the standards of player conduct outlined in section six of the handbook. That's not this document. That's the document we're going to look at next. And the rule infractions and penalties outlined in section seven of the handbook. In addition to the foregoing, the following conduct will reduce grandmaster player prize totals by the following amounts. Prize totals cannot be reduced below zero dollars US. Very nice of them, by the way. If you understand that parenthetical, what it says is you can't wind up owing Blizzard money for a deduction, which is, you know, the the sheer mountain of largesse at that kind of parenthetical provision is is almost funny to me. But yes, you can't go into the negatives and wind up owing Blizzard money under this rule set. Although they could 
definitely bring a damages claim if you started throwing their laptops around or whatever it is that is at their venue. It says, all prize deductions will be decided in Blizzard's sole discretion and are final and binding once communicated to the player receiving the deduction. We will see that language a lot. We will see Blizzard claim that their sole discretion is final and binding in a number of places. And that has some effect, but it's not entire effect. Said another way, the contract on its own says that when Blizzard decides something, you can't challenge it. But the courts take that under advisement. They aren't ruled by that kind of language. If Blizzard were to say uh, that you drinking a Coca-Cola outside of the venue is somehow bringing them into public disrepute and take $200,000 from you, the fact that this contract says that that is binding and unappealable doesn't matter, right? The court's going to look at that and says, you're crazy, Blizzard. We're going to get involved in something like that. This is a much closer question because this is an actual political stance that Blizzard as a company appears to be uncomfortable with. But when you see this language, and you will see it in a number of places, it's essentially designed to be a show of strength. We want this to be unappealable. Court, you should be very careful about overturning something of this type. And if you do, understand that you're going against the language that we and the other party have agreed to. That's really the stance that is established by this language. That all being said, we scroll further down to the actual rule in question here, which we see is engaging in any act that in Blizzard's sole discretion brings you into public disrepute, offends a portion or group of the public, or otherwise damages Blizzard's image will result in removal from Grandmasters and reduction of the player's prize total to zero US dollars in addition to everything else in the handbook and the website terms. So that's the actual rule. And you see it's the, the strongest penalty that you actually have here. You have other penalties that refer directly to the handbook that have things like $500 lost, that have things like $1,000 lost, and pretty significant things. If you're engaging in account boosting, you can lose $1,000. If you are involved in in-game disruption or harassment, you can lose $500. Uh, if you don't follow the rules of the tournament, you can lose $500 or $1,000. Uh, all these various kinds of things. And then this kind of broad umbrella statement where if Blizzard determines that they don't like you, they can take all of your money, not 500, not 1,000. And you see the exact same kind of standard in the one uh, section immediately above this, which says, hey, if you're convicted of a criminal offense, we can reduce you to $0 and remove you from Grandmasters. So just so we're clear, the actual stance here is that Blizzard views something that it's unhappy with as the equivalent of a criminal offense in a state, local, or national government. And that in of itself is interesting, uh, but they do have the language here, which is going to be a problem in terms of overcoming it. So we look at what exactly dispute requirements are in this document, and we keep scrolling down. We see you can't have sponsorships that violate the existing Blizzard sponsorships. You're not their employee. We can change these rules whenever we want, and here's how we'll communicate with you, and a glossary. There is no dispute resolution mechanism in this document. There is no venue. There is no limitation on liability language. There's not anything that you would usually see in a contract like this. And the reason that there isn't is because they have incorporated it all by reference to their player handbook, which we will look at now. So this is a second document. This isn't unusual. This isn't anything that is non-standard for Blizzard to have. A second document that kind of talks a little bit more generally about what the rules, the terms and conditions of participating in something like a Hearthstone tournament are that are generally more applicable than just the Grandmasters, just the Asia-Pacific quadrant of Grandmasters, whatever it might be. You want to have a document that's more of general applicability. And in this case, this kind of outlines what dispute resolutions are, how the rules are going to be enforced. We see here in the table of contents, the applicability here, the eligibility here, how tournaments work, tournament mechanics. And then we get into section six, which is player conduct, player infractions, and resolutions of disputes. So that's where we're really interested. So we're going to scroll all the way down to page 20 of this document, because as much as it might be interesting how the tournaments are actually structured, it isn't actually that useful for our understanding of a topic like this one. They say players must at all times observe the highest standards of personal integrity and good sportsmanship. We saw that language in the rulebook. Players are required to behave in a professional and sportsmanlike manner in their interactions with other competitors, tournament organizers, members of the administration team, the media, sponsors, and fans. Now, just taking a step back for a second there, it's interesting. If your highest standards of personal integrity require you, by the virtue of your own morals or philosophy, to speak out on a situation like this, 
does this language actually require you to do so? These are the kinds of ambiguities that you see in rules like this. And if you're going to hold somebody to the highest standards of personal integrity, if that's going to be kind of your broad, non-defined, quote unquote, uh, standard, then you have to ask yourself whether or not you haven't encouraged something like this. And while I don't think that's a great legal argument, it's worth kind of following up on because they're not really paying attention to questions like that when they talk about this. They're really only paying attention to how a tournament is to be run and operated and the fact that you shouldn't yell at people. We'll see here how they describe some of the player conduct issues. You shouldn't cheat. You shouldn't engage in illegal or unethical conduct. You shouldn't harass people. You shouldn't gamble. You shouldn't use alcohol and drugs. You shouldn't disparage folks. You got to be careful in interview. You can't use software bugs. You got to be careful with your hardware. Can't have conflicting sponsorships. And that's basically all that they really talk about. There's nothing here necessarily about politics. There's nothing here necessarily about what happened in respect to this particular issue. They just kind of reserve a general right to make an issue of it. And so we get into player infractions and penalties. You see, in order to preserve the integrity of the tournament and Blizzard's reputation for open and fair competition, Blizzard reserves the right to monitor compliance with the terms of this handbook and impose sanctions for violations. So again, they're reserving this right, this power, really in an effort to preserve the spirit of competition in their tournaments. It's exactly what you would expect a document like this to be focused on. Don't cheat, don't do bad acts, but yes, don't make Blizzard look bad by cheating or doing those bad acts. Probably not necessarily don't make Blizzard look bad by saying something about China or Hong Kong or Trump or whoever. However, that is how they've interpreted it for this purpose. And we'll see exactly how that maybe doesn't work so well with the actual rubric that they have provided for penalties. We've got here warnings, game losses, match losses, and disqualifications is kind of the standards here for failure to submit a deck, deck list materials, wrong deck uh, selection, match tardiness, failure to check in on time, match and game disconnects, failure to ban, failure to follow tournament announcements, specific instructions, cheating, all this good stuff. And then we get to unsporting conduct, which is really where this lives. This is the only provision in this section that really talks about things that you can say and get in trouble. It says, this infraction occurs when a player exhibits behavior that a tournament organizer considers unacceptable during the normal operation of the tournament. Unsporting conduct is disruptive to the tournament and may negatively affect the safety, competitiveness, enjoyment, image, or integrity of a tournament. Unsporting conduct has two subcategories outlined below. Now, before we get into them, I think it is worthwhile for Blizzard or for whoever, even the NBA, to have rules that say, maybe we don't want you to disrupt what we're doing here. We don't want you to disrupt what a card game is. We don't want to disrupt what a basketball game is. And we want to have a rule of neutral applicability that will say, hey, we don't want you disrupting any of this, and so you shouldn't, uh, and we're going to have a rule against it. As a matter of fact, that's the definition that they use for a minor unsporting conduct infraction. They say players have the right to a safe and enjoyable tournament experience. This infraction, a minor infraction, occurs when a player does something disruptive to the tournament or its participants. I think regardless of what you feel about Hong Kong or China or elsewise, you can see that this statement could be argued is disruptive. I don't have a problem with that. It's a minor infraction. They say examples include, but are not limited to, we reserve the right to say whatever they are in the future, excessive swearing, demanding that an opponent receives a penalty after the tournament official has made clear they won't be giving it, throwing trash on the floor, or otherwise littering. The initial penalty for this infraction, a minor infraction, is a warning. You get a warning. Now, I don't know the history of Blitzchung, but no history was brought up in the statement that Blizzard made, that this was a fourth offense or an eighth offense, and that he's already received warnings for, for talk of this type. So I have no indication or reason to believe that he has received such a warning. So you say, okay, if it is a minor offense, why wasn't the initial penalty for the infraction a warning? The reason is that they reserve the right in the Grandmaster's rules to do something like a $0 uh, reduction and suspension and everything else because they reserve the right to do all of this stuff. And that might be accurate. But when you're looking at something like this, when you're looking at kind of a, a due process equitable argument over what should be expected if you are in Blitzchung's shoes, should he have expected a reduction in $0 and a suspension and a ban and everything else? I think the argument could be made that the answer there is no that, okay, I was disruptive. I made a statement that maybe I shouldn't have made in that context if I want to admit to that, and I'm Blitzchung. However, you've got right here that excessive swearing or profanity, other things that are disruptive, should be minor. But maybe it's major. Let's see what kind of things they list under major. 
This infraction covers a large category of behaviors that do not fall under the definition of minor and sporting conduct. Examples include intentionally breaking tournament equipment, defacing the tournament venue, threatening a tournament official, violence towards any tournament participation official or spectator, theft. The penalty for this infraction is a disqualification without prizes, which matches up with Blitzchung's uh, penalty. In addition, the tournament organizers will report on sporting conduct to Blizzard, and Blizzard will get to decide what to do with it. And that's really, when we start talking about issues here, that's the closest that this handbook comes to describing what we're talking about. Now, yes, the Grandmaster rules are to be read in conjunction with the handbook. So the Grandmaster rule 6.10 that Blizzard has quoted likely do apply. If Blizzard determines it brings you into public disrepute, the contract says they can reduce you to $0, they can do other bad stuff to you. And then this handbook goes so far as to say you can't uh, appeal that. It's all binding. You see here the penalty investigations process talks about how Blizzard's going to look at all these things. And then we get to E in that section and it says all of Blizzard's determinations with regards to disciplinary action shall be binding and may not be appealed in any way. If a player's disqualification status or other eligibility requirement is in question, Blizzard reserves the right to exclude such player from participating in any tournament. And then it goes further in 715 to say they have the right to publish public declarations like they did on their blog about the disciplinary action that they have taken. So they have all this language in the handbook. They have all this language in their Grandmaster rules that says we can make this determination solely, arbitrarily, and it's unappealable and binding. That's as strong as it gets. And when we talk about contracts like this, when we talk about handbooks and rule sets like this, it's important to note that these are what we would call contracts of adhesion. We've discussed that term in virtual legality before, but it means that this contract was not a negotiated one. At no point was Blitzchung, his representatives, his clan, his team, anyone else involved in this entire thing negotiating directly with Blizzard for what this language should say. And in general, while freedom of contract is honored in the jurisdictions in the United States and elsewhere, contracts of adhesion are looked at with a bit of a side eye that, okay, if you've got a contract that you've determined all the language for, we are going to make really carefully clear that you don't have provisions in there that are patently unfair, what you might otherwise call in certain jurisdictions unconscionable, that shock the conscience of the court, or that are void for public policy that the state or the country or the jurisdiction can't abide by a term of that nature because it is so unfair to the other party who didn't have a stance in negotiating it. And we're going to take a look at the kind of standard for unconscionability, particularly in California, as we move on with this video. But more importantly for this purpose is the resolution of dispute section. We talked about it being lacking in the rule set. And why it's important is because this is what's going to determine exactly what kind of action Blitzchung could bring against Blizzard if he were so inclined. This says this section applies to and governs any dispute that arises out of or relates to any tournament, a tournament-related event, tournament-specific rules, this handbook, or the breach thereof. I think it's pretty clear that a statement made on a broadcast immediately after a match in Grandmasters is going to have this section apply to it. It says, first, in an effort to accelerate resolution and reduce the cost of any dispute, you and Blizzard agree to first attempt to negotiate a resolution for at least 30 days. Negotiations will begin upon receipt of written notice. You will send this notice to us in California. If that doesn't work, we move on to section 8.3. If a dispute cannot be resolved through negotiations, either you or Blizzard may elect to have the dispute finally and exclusively resolved by binding arbitration unless one or more of the exceptions to negotiations and arbitration below apply. Now, Arbitration, if you're not familiar with it, is a private kind of court proceeding. There are specific arbitration companies that work out there in various jurisdictions. They provide arbitrators. And you have something like a discovery process, something like a deposition and cross-examination process, but you don't go through the court system. And a lot of folks think that it's more useful, it's cheaper, it's more efficient. I, my mileage has varied with various clients on arbitration and on mediation, to be honest. Uh, but Suffice it to say, it's useful to a lot of corporations. It's useful to a lot of folks, frankly, uh, in terms of keeping things quiet. These aren't public records. Uh, you can have settlements that are relatively private. And so arbitration is very well thought of uh, by a lot of corporations, including Blizzard here. Uh, and this says arbitration will apply unless an exception applies. And we're going to take a look at that because I think one thing that we should note is that the end goal of this, if Blitzchung were to sue Blizzard, 
the various websites and articles aren't very clear on what his current winnings are that have been rescinded by Blizzard are. They go up to as high as about $10,000 in certain places that I saw or $3,000 in a different article that I saw. So I think we can assume that 10000 is about the max here. Arbitration isn't going to do a lot of good. Your, your goal in, in doing this against Blizzard is probably to make it public exactly what they've done, make it public what their discovery might be, other kinds of communications that they might be having in-house about this particular issue. If you went so far as to sue them, you probably have other goals than just $10,000 because $10,000 is not generally enough to pay for a lawyer to go and, and look at all these things for you without a GoFundMe or whatever else that you might do uh, for a kind of plaintiff's costs. So you want to not have this go into arbitration. You want to not have this be silent and quiet. The end goal should be a court case because that's how you're going to get things out in the open. That's how you're going to have actual traction against Blizzard. And ideally for something like this, where you're going to have to go against the contract terms, you're going to want to have it under the law of a jurisdiction that is more likely to call things unconscionable, to call them void for public policy. And in my opinion, based on the fact that Blizzard is located in California, based on the fact that California takes a significant side eye towards many contract provisions that might be otherwise entirely enforceable in Michigan or Delaware or New York or where have you, that your goal, if you're Blitzchung and we're having this conversation on this video or podcast, would be to get a court case with lawyers and discovery in the state of California, under California law. That's going to be your ideal solution. So as we continue to look at this, that's what we're focused on is can we get this thing into a California court? And as we just said, if mandatory arbitration applies, we might have an issue. And we see here there's a class action waiver that the California courts might not like as well. Uh, but we get to 8.6, which is the location of arbitration. It says, hey, if you're in the U.S., it'll take place wherever you live. If you're outside the U.S., which I believe Blitzchung is, then it will take place in Los Angeles, California, in the U.S. But the exceptions are in D. It says, you and Blizzard agree that the following disputes are not subject to the above provisions concerning negotiations and binding arbitration. You don't have to go through negotiations. You don't have to go through arbitration. In disputes that are related to Blizzard's IP, in disputes that are related to piracy or tortious interference, you can see how these are written to allow them to sue you for IP infringement or piracy, or for any claim within the jurisdictional limits of the small claims courts. Now, the small claims courts vary by jurisdiction. So this is an interesting statement in and of itself. But ultimately, it's likely that what they're thinking of as they exist in California are the California small claims courts. So let's take a look at what the actual California small claims courts rules are. And I've pulled up now the California courts, judicial branch of California website. It says basics. Civil court cases. Small claims case, a civil case filed in small claims court for $10,000 or less. If you are a business, you can only sue for $5,000. Blitzchung, I don't believe is a business. I don't believe he operated in a respect of the Blitzchung LLC, but maybe he did. But either way, we're talking about a number that is probably less than $10,000 in small claims. You say, okay, well, if you bring a small claims case, Again, you can't be represented by lawyers. You don't have the same kind of process that we're talking about. It's not the same kind of pain point that you would want to inflict on Blizzard if you are Blitzchung and if you're even going through this process or discussing this concept at all with your counsel. Can you bring it somewhere else? And you see that they've got a set of courts that are called limited civil, a general civil case that involves an amount of money of $25,000 or less. If you're paying attention at home, you know that $10,000 or less is within the bounds of $25,000 or less. So the immediate question becomes, can you bring a case that qualifies for small claim status in a limited civil case? We scroll down the California court cases and we see here a very useful statement. Keep in mind that you can have a civil case for $10,000 or less that is not in small claims court. There are many reasons why this may happen. Sometimes people choose not to file their case in small claims court because they want to have a lawyer represent them even if the amount in dispute is less than $10,000. You want to have a lawyer involved. You want to have some nasty letters sent to Blizzard. You want to do these kinds of things that are normal in a litigation. You can bring your claim for $5,000 in limited civil court. It'll be more expensive. It'll potentially be a more significant undertaking. But in all likelihood, that's your goal. So the question then becomes, if you have something that qualifies for small claims court, but you don't use small claims court, can you get out of the arbitration provision that Blizzard has put into their language? And now 
Again, none of this is legal advice, but I look at a term like this. If you want to think like a lawyer, you're trying to get your client into a California court, if you can, and you say, it's accepted from arbitration and negotiation, any claim within the jurisdictional limits of the small claims court. You look at this language and you say, what does it not say? It doesn't say that would be brought in small claims court. It doesn't say that it's subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of small claims court. It says that is within the jurisdictional limits of the small claims court. So I look at that and say, well, within the jurisdictional limits of the small claims court means any claim that I bring of $10,000 or less, regardless of whether I bring it in a small claims court. So I look at that and say, okay, maybe I can use that provision to get myself into limited civil action in California. And then we've got a stew going. Then we've got a court case, because as long as I'm not bringing it for $10,000, I can bring something with a lawyer with some processes that maybe aren't as extensive as a full kind of unlimited case. I'm not familiar with California uh, jurisdiction, federal rules of procedure, civil rules of procedure for the state. If anybody is, please leave a comment in the description of this video about what things you can and can't do as, as opposed to a limited and unlimited case in California state courts. But undoubtedly, it is a more significant process than just the small, uh, the small claims court. And that could potentially get you out into those courts just by the fact that you are bringing something that is worth less than $10,000. Then we look at what law will apply. Because as I mentioned, California law is probably the most useful to you on this point. It says, all disputes shall be governed by and construed under the laws of the United States of America and the law of the state of Delaware, without regard to choice of law principles, choose of law principles, that's a typo, provided that Blizzard shall have the right to disqualify any players from tournament competition that are rendered ineligible due to local law. So they say, what law applies to this contract that we are entering into? It is Delaware law. And how can they say that, right? Delaware, how does Delaware get involved in this? In all likelihood, I believe Activision Blizzard uh, and, and probably all subsidiaries of Activision Blizzard are Delaware corporations. Almost all significantly funded corporations in America are Delaware corporations. And in the past, the state of Delaware has generally allowed you to say, okay, Delaware law applies because it's a kind of standard business law. And it won't have the same kind of issues with unconscionability as the state of California would. So you say, Rick, okay, well, if Delaware law applies, that means we might be in a California court, but the California court has to apply Delaware law. That isn't as ideal as we would like it to be. And I would say to you, first of all, yes, absolutely. That's good law lawyering. But also that Delaware has recently kind of taken its own side eye to, to people and places and companies that choose to apply Delaware law without another connection to the state of Delaware. And I pulled up here an article from the end of last year in the National Law Review says Delaware court grapples with enforcement of choice of law provisions and restrictive covenant agreements. That's a very specific type of document. But the logic here might be applicable to what we are talking about. It says, while Delaware courts generally honor contractual choice of law provisions, the court noted an important public policy exception to that rule. As the court explained in Cabela's, where the parties enter into a contract, which, except for the choice of law provision, would be governed by the law of a different state, and that state has a public policy under which a contractual provision would be limited or void, the restatement recognizes that allowing the parties to contract around that public policy would be an unwholesome exercise of freedom of contract. Breaking that down a little bit, what it says is, let's say you're operating in California, and California famously doesn't allow non-compete provisions in their employment contracts. And you say, you're employed in California, but we are going to say your employment contract is governed by Delaware law that the Delaware courts should look at that and say, okay, well, pu public policy dictates that California would void this provision if it were actually held to be under California law. And the company is headquartered in California. What tie does it have to Delaware exactly? And if we apply what they have explicitly said here to apply Delaware law, then that won't be void for public policy and this employee will be hurt by something that they have nothing to do with and that really has no cognizable nexus to the state of Delaware. And so they are going to take a closer look at it. Now, this is still pretty newish. This is not the normal stance for Delaware. Delaware usually gives a very broad freedom of contract to folks. If you want to say Delaware law, you can say Delaware law, especially if you're a Delaware corporation. But this kind of statement allows you to say, okay, if any of the provisions that we just looked at, if any of the provisions in this handbook or in this contract could be held unconscionable in California, then maybe the California court will look at this, will look at what Delaware has said about their own application of laws and say, Delaware law shouldn't apply. You're bringing this claim in California. 
you're bringing a limited civil case in California. The company is headquartered in California. They were willing to agree to arbitration in California. And we think California law should apply, especially when you get to things like limitational liability. Your direct damages cannot exceed 500 US dollars. Well, that's hard to believe that that's a limitation of liability when they reserve the right to potentially take $200,000 from you. That's a limitation of liability that you look at and you say, no, if you unilaterally take the action to seize $200,000 from me and I challenge you on it, that limitation of liability strikes me as shocking my conscience, that that's not the kind of limitation of liability that you should have. Generally speaking, a limitation of liability should apply to unknowns and to things that you're not directly responsible for. In this case, this isn't a, a tortious claim. This isn't a claim that your lawnmower suddenly uh, destroyed part of a hose and that you should owe damages for it. This is something where you say, my company t stole a specific amount of money from you. The court finds that we stole it. And yet we get to keep all but $500 of that money because of this provision in the contract. I don't think a lot of courts are going to look terribly kindly on that provision. And when you start to pile all of this up, and you start to think about how a California court might respond to this kind of concepting, you start to get pretty close to the question of unconscionability. So kind of the final bit that I wanted to talk about here is what's unconscionable in California. I've pulled up a court case, A&M Produce versus FMC Corp, 1982. Now there've been a lot of contract interpretations since then, but this is one of those cases that gets referenced in a lot of places that I saw that are talking about unconscionability in California, you see here at the top here that this is a Court of Appeals of California decision, and they have a really nice structure for what they mean by what, when something is unconscionable. Now, unfortunately, when we talk about something like unconscionability, it is an equitable principle. Because we are looking outside the four corners of the document, it necessarily means we're going to have to employ something like balancing tests. And you see that throughout this structure. The Uniform Commercial Code does not attempt to precisely define what is or is not unconscionable. Nevertheless, unconscionability has generally been recognized to include an absence of meaningful choice on the part of one of the parties, together with contract terms which are unreasonably favorable to the other party. The procedural element of this focuses on two factors, oppression and surprise. Oppression arises from an inequality of bargaining power, which results in no real negotiation and an absence of meaningful choice. There can be absolutely no question here that the players in the Hearthstone tournament did not negotiate one whit of the language that appears in the handbook or the rules that govern Blizzard's tournament. So the oppression, regardless of how you feel about that particular word, the oppression prong of this kind of test, this kind of analysis, definitely applies. Surprise involves the extent to which the supposedly agreed upon terms of the bargain are hidden in a prolex printed form drafted by the party seeking to enforce the disputed terms. That's the way of saying, hey, if we make the fine print microscopic and we put it somewhere that you can't find it, the court is going to be less likely to enforce it because you don't want to put important terms in a hidden area. That's one of the reasons you see if you're doing a click-through contract in a very specific kind of license that some of the important terms are brought up to the front, uh, that maybe they don't make sense in the overall logic of the document, but they want to make darn sure that you see them. That could be intellectual property assignment. That could be limitations on liability. Other important things that they want to apply to try to avoid this kind of surprise notion. The court continues... Of course, the mere fact that a contract term is not read or understood by the non-drafting party or that the drafting party occupies a superior bargaining position will not authorize a court to refuse to enforce the contract. Although an argument can be made that contract terms not actively negotiated between the parties fall outside the circle of assent, i.e. there's no actual meeting of the minds, an agreement in a contract that is of adhesion, as we've discussed, Commercial practicalities dictate that unbargained for terms only be denied enforcement where they are also substantively unreasonable. In other words, look, the, the way society functions is to have these kinds of contracts of adhesion, to have these terms and conditions. We can't ban them all. We have to look at what only is patently unfair. No precise definition of substantive unconscionability can be pro-offered. The most detailed and specific commentaries observe that a contract is largely an allocation of risks between the parties, and therefore that a contractual term is substantively suspect if it reallocates the risks of the bargain in an objectively unreasonable or unexpected manner. In other words, if you've got a situation where somebody goes, they win a tournament, they get second place in a tournament, they expect $2,000, they say something about Hong Kong after services have been provided, and Blizzard says, hey, look at this term, we can take all your money away and suspend you for a year. 
is that a valid allocation of the risks associated with this particular issue? Is it important enough to, for Blizzard to be able to do something like that, that it could be justified in a contract? Now, I will take a step back here and say there is no possible way that anybody, any lawyer, can tell you exactly what a judge faced with this question that Blitzchung would pose to Blizzard's interpretation of its own rules and its own handbook, what that judge would determine. There's nobody on earth that can say that. And if Blitzchung were to sit in a lawyer's office right now and say, lawyer, what are my chances of success here? They might be able to give you all of this analysis. They might be able to talk about everything we've talked about in virtual legality. And at the end of the day, they would have to say, we can't guess what a judge might do with an unconscionability decision. Hey, yes, we can bring the claim. Hey, yes, we might have a good argument about why it should be considered unconscionable, but we have a lot of hurdles to get there. We have to get into a court proceeding. We have to get into a court proceeding, probably with California law to be most beneficial to you. Then we have to get that court to determine that this language that is expressed and that you can read that says we can reduce you to $0 is unconscionable on its face probably in combination with some of the other provisions in the document, such as the fact that they say that a warning will only proceed for things that are disruptive and that the limitation on liability is obviously overly draconian, could never or would be very unlikely to be enforced in the fashion that they have drafted it. And that's how you get to something at the end of this statement from the court in this case that says, but not all unreasonable risk allocations are unconscionable. Rather, enforceability of the clause is tied to the procedural aspects of unconscionability such as the greater the unfair surprise or inequality of bargaining power, the less unreasonable the risk allocation will be tolerated. Said another way, if you are completely unable to negotiate your document, if they have put the provision on page 16 uh, and not put it up front as something that they could use, then the court is going to be more likely to strike that down as void for public policy, as unconscionable, than they might otherwise be if it were put up front and you had some ability to negotiate the contract terms which is all a long way of saying, hey, the court might find it unconscionable. And in California, they might be more likely than most. We look here at another provision that doesn't directly relate to Blitzchung, but because this is an issue of novel impression, this kind of concept of a blizzard tournament and trying to go get money back, we see analogies in other places in California. I've pulled up a website here from a, from a lawyer corporation that says the law on late and unpaid wages in California. And we look here and we see that California has to pay final wages on terminations uh, within a very short period of time. In general, an employee who is fired must be paid all unpaid wages that have been earned up to and including the date of termination. But Blitzchung, of course, isn't an employee. Blitzchung is essentially a contract partner, something like an independent contractor that provides contact, uh, content to Blizzard in exchange for winnings. And we see here very clearly that wages, while contract rights, aren't necessarily what is to be paid to independent contractors. This very same site says independent contractors receive payment for work performed pursuant to a contract, but those payments are not wages. So this law doesn't directly apply. You say, Rick, why, why did you bring this up? And the reason I brought this up is because when you're looking at an issue of novel interpretation, when you're looking at something that doesn't exist, that doesn't have something clear that you can point to in the law, you're trying to, to look at things that relate to what you're talking about. This very much looks like the question of actually being able to go and get those winnings back, which is, I think, where Blitzchung would be able to focus his complaint. Probably not on the suspension, probably not on the ban, but on actually going and getting the money that he has so far earned back from Blizzard that it looks a lot like wage theft. It looks a lot like an employee that did some work for you. And now when they leave, you say, I'm not going to pay you what you earned for that time period because I am now unhappy with you. And that's generally not allowed in California. And in particular, even when we're talking about independent contractors, California has really started to examine the relationship between employees, employers, and independent contractors in general. I brought up this video that I did earlier uh, in the year, about a month ago, that says the gig is up, why California's AB5 might just kill its gaming industry. And that bill, which was signed into law in California, basically says that almost everybody's going to be an employee unless you can prove that they are an independent contractor in California. Now, Blitzchung, I don't believe, is actually resident in California. I don't think this law would be of applicability to him. But it goes to show that California right now and in its legislature and generally filtering through its populace and probably its court system is looking at the employee independent contractor relationship very, very closely. And they are striking down some of what they see as unfairness 
in the independent contractor relationship. So if Blitzchung can go, can get, can defeat the mediation requirement, can defeat the arbitration requirement, can get into a court in California, cannot be bound to be in small claims court, but can actually be represented by a lawyer in a limited civil case in California, can then defeat Delaware law's applicability, get California law applicable, and can then show that these provisions are unconscionable, you might well have a case if you're Blitzchung. Obviously, that's a long list of things to do, and I think it's unlikely that it would happen. But a number of people asked me the question, and I thought it was worth looking at. These are the kinds of things that lawyers every day are analyzing, lawyers every day are considering. And if you're Blizzard's lawyers, if you're the lawyers for a company that's holding a tournament that is dealing with these issues, like the NBA, like Apple, like everybody else right now, as we hit kind of a zeitgeist moment discussing China's influence on the way American companies are operating, these are the kinds of things you're going to want to consider in the language that you are putting into your own terms and conditions. And so you have to be cognizant of these things if you're going to be in a situation where these things can be brought up against you. And it wouldn't surprise me if some enterprising law firm or lawyer wants to take Blitzchung's action to court, wants to make an example of Blizzard Activision. There isn't enough money there to make it make sense for the lawyer, but there might be enough publicity and it might be something that is important enough to some well-meaning folks to bring at the end of the day. That's been Virtual Legality for today. Thank you so much for watching. We cover these kinds of topics all of the time. We are generally focused on software, information technology, pop culture, media, and the video game landscape in business and law. But that kind of dovetails with a lot of the stuff that we talked about today and we've talked about earlier this week. If you like this, please like, please subscribe, please share it around. Otherwise, if you caught it on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.